So if I see someone selling penguin poo, I should make sure it's from a reputable source. It, and it's exactly, for somebody with an export license. Okay. You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Manchester Group's Earth and Solar System Cosmic Cast. You're here with me, proprietor of the phrase, don't worry, I'm Ricky Bahir, Rick Bahir. <laughs> to my left, there is a parrot among the pigeons, Dr. John Pernet Fisher. Hello. To my right, uh, the economically viable Tom Harvey. Hello. And we have a real guest for you all today. And I know I always say this, but I'm getting emotional. It is uh, the ever joyful and always a Catherine, Dr. Catherine Joy. <laughs> Thanks, Ricky. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? How are you, John? I'm pretty good, thanks. And Tom? Yeah, I'm doing all right. And I'm very well, thank you. Good stuff. Do you think of those on the fly? That's very impressive. <laughs> Don't break the fourth <laughs> wall, John. <laughs> um, so, Katie, um, I think it's always best to start this by letting the people know just a brief synopsis of who you are. So obviously you work here at Manchester University. I do. We're sitting in my office right now. We are sat at the fourth wall, Katie. The fourth, <laughs> don't break it. So you are your lecturer here. Uh, uh, yes, uh, yeah, I'm a, a Royal Society University Research Fellow, which means that I get um, funding from the Royal Society, which is a, a charity supported by the government down in London to do research. Um, and I'm paid to do uh, investigating the moon's geological history and specifically its impact geology history. Not only do you work and lecture and uh, study the surface of the moon, you've also recently been down to Antarctica. That's correct, yes. Yeah. So um, in, in addition to the, the research I'm funded for, we also tend to get involved with lots of other projects when you um, work in academia. And I got sucked into a really exciting project working with my friend Jeff, who is in the School of Maths here. Um, and we, we sort of actually, this is a project that started in the pub, which is where all science should start. <laughs> Indeed. In that we were uh, having a bit of a chat about um, Antarctica and meteorites. And um, Jeff's been thinking a long time about debris covered glaciers and how glaciers that have rock on top behave differently under lighting different lighting conditions to those that aren't debris covered mm. and he'd heard of the fact that we go to antarctica to collect meteorites and we were chatting about meteorites and then we got into a whole discussion about um, collection statistics of the types of meteorites you find in Antarctica compared to with everywhere else in the world. Mm. And this is a known kind of statistical anomaly. Um, the types uh, that we find in Antarctica have less iron meteorites okay. than the stony types. So these are some mm. of the main classification groups of meteorites. And anyway, Jeff being a mathematician into his statistics got all excited about this. And um, we went off and we tried to demonstrate why this, this difference could mm. possibly exist. And then um, we managed to secure some funding and uh, one thing led to another and suddenly I found myself in Antarctica. So a bit of a long story cut down short, but yes, I've just got back about two yeah. weeks ago. And uh, um, how many times have you been now? This is the third time that I've been to wow. Antarctica. So I've been twice before. Um, I went down with an American meteorite hunting um, project mm. called ANSMET. They've been operating since the 1970s. Um, they invite international scientists to join them on some of their expeditions. And so I've been lucky enough to be supported by them twice, which was 
amazing and then um, now we're doing this new project which is the first time is a UK-led Antarctic meteorite recovery program so we're really proud of the fact that this is the first time in the UK um, we've been financially supported through a research grant and it's the first time that the British Antarctic Survey have facilitated the logistics to get people to Antarctica mm. which is you know a real step a real move forward and now we've um, we've done this once we've demonstrated that Actually, there are meteorites in the parts of Antarctica that Basque can get us to. Mm. This provides a real opportunity for the future to continue this as a new research program. Uh, something that just uh, on an overview level, people who are listening might not fully understand uh, is is why do we find meteorites in places such as Antarctica and also like desert-like areas of the planet? Yeah, yeah, great. No, that's a really good question. So we have about um, 60,000 meteorites that have been recovered all across the world and that's based on um, meteorites that exist within a database that have a name so there's probably more meteorites sometimes people don't bother to get a name for them but of those 60,000 meteorites about 35,000 have been found in Antarctica now that doesn't mean that they more fall in Antarctica than anywhere else actually probably more fall towards Earth's equator Mm. um, to do with the way that they're kind of uh, gravitationally attracted to the Earth but the ones in Antarctica are easy to find um, black rock sitting on white ice Mm -hmm. they're very well preserved Um, if a meteorite falls here in the UK you know they disappear into a forest they're quite hard to find they tend to get eroded by water and rain and they sink into the mud in Antarctica it's essentially a dry desert so they don't get altered very easily and in Antarctica we have this concentration mechanism whereby um, although they fall all over Antarctica the ice is funneled up through its natural transport to the coastal uh, coastal areas. And then when they hit a mountain range, the meteorites sort of are, are projected upwards mm-hmm. where they emerge at the surface. And so we can go to certain areas of Antarctica. They're called meteorite stranding zones where you can find tens to hundreds of meteorites within a few hundred meters to kilometers. Mm-hmm. So they make an ideal collection ground to go and recover these samples from. So is it quite good luck then that some of the British bases are near some of these areas? Um, yeah, actually, the, the British bases are are frustratingly quite far from these areas. Mm. So that was one of the major challenges we had with the project was to work out where we thought were good areas where meteorites could be concentrated. That was sort of step one. They tend to be in regions that are called blue ice areas, mm. a very slow moving ice close to topographic highs. They tend to be close to the polar plateau, so where the ice kind of comes off from the South Pole. Um, and uh, both those areas are actually quite far from the main British Antarctic Survey base, which is called Rothera, which is on the Antarctic Peninsula, kind of up underneath Chile. Um, we do have another base on the Antarctic continent called Halley. Is that which, the one that's on skis? It is the one yes. on skis. It's so cool. It's sort of further to the east than Rothera. It's on the Brunt Ice Shelf. It's actually um, sitting on ice, which is overlying the ocean. So it's wow. in quite a precarious mm-hmm. position, and there is... Um, a, this is actually Halley 6 is the one with skis. There's been five Halley bases before that have all disappeared <laughs> off and kind of drifted uh, away wow. and have been lost. So Halley 6 is designed because it's on skis to be able to be towed and moved to a new location. Oh, wow. And so when there's a potential issue with an ice crack that forms, um, there's a lot of logistics that clearly that go into it. Mm. There's a great BBC Horizon documentary you can watch yeah. where they, they drag this base on skis and they reposition it. And that yeah. happened um, two winters ago, um, which fortunately it did because there is now a big crack quite close to Halley opening up, mm. but they've moved it to a relatively safe position. So we, we flew... To get to Antarctica, we flew to Chile, we flew to Santiago, we flew right down to the bottom of Chile to a place called Punta Arenas. Mm. We got on an airplane, we flew down to Rothera, that's about a five-hour flight. 
And then after a, a little bit of time in Rothera, we spent um, uh, another, uh, well, a few days in Rothera, and then we had a flight that, three flights that got us all the way over to Halley. Spent a bit of time in Halley, which was amazing, mm. and then went out to the field from there. So um, our field sites were about 600 kilometers south of Halley, which is about a three and a half hour flight in a, a tiny little aeroplane called wow. a Twin Otter. So pretty remote, difficult to get to, and this is probably why um, bass have not really done mm. this type of field work before mm. but there has been geology field work done in this area and glacial research done in this area so this is why we knew that they could get us there mm. and uh, what are the rules in terms of who can actually go there so there must you can't no one can just willy-nilly go down there and look for meteorites sure, no no so in yeah. antarctica um the antarctic continent is prote- protected by what's called the antarctic treaty and this mm. means that um it's primarily used for scientific research. And if you want to remove anything from Antarctica, be it a rock sample, a bit of ice, you know, penguin poo, a penguin, Mm. whatever, you know, whatever you need to remove, you have to get permission from your local government Mm -hmm. authority. So So if I see someone selling penguin poo, I should make sure it's from a reputable source. Exactly, for somebody with an export license. (laughs) But you can't, well, actually, no, you can't sell anything. That's the whole point. Antarctica is there not for profit that's the yeah, point no. of the antarctic there are treaty. no gift shops there well there are gift shops but you know that's that stuff that they brought in and then resold <laughs> all branded with your local uh, your local organizational yeah. base local craftsmen. exactly yeah. local craftsmen um but no it's, um stuff that's natural to antarctica is really protected mm. and we had to go through quite a heavy um uh, organizing for permits for removal which were organ- which were approved by bass and then mm. approved by the uk foreign office so it's quite a long process and you have to demonstrate you know why you're going and you have to um demonstrate uh, you know your conform to environmental regulations mm. in the field um tourists do go to antarctica and Antarctica is really opening up for tourism now, both in terms of uh, cruise ships that go through. And also you can actually get to the interior um, if you have enough money. And you can even get to Pole if you have enough money. Mm. Um, you know, it's one of these things that, that very wealthy people do. Um, you can ski, you know, you can go there and you can do expeditions where you ski across the continents as well. So Antarctica is opening up for mm. more people. But to do the types of scientific research as we did, you need a lot of permissions to be able to go there. You sound very positive about all of that, all the tourism and everything. Going I think it's well. I think that it's it's a good thing that people see these environments and appreciate mm. them because, frankly, we don't know how long they're going to last. Uh, a lot of the Antarctic yeah. areas are going to last, and a, there are a lot of um, glaciers that are retreating. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge amount of scientific study yet going on into a glacier at the moment called Thwaites, which is in the western part of Antarctica. Which, if that thing melts, is going to add about eighty centimeters of ice to the gl- uh, to water to the global mm. sea budget. So, you know. Taking it's people going to Antarctica are are typically people that are responsible and want to see it in its natural pristine state. Yeah. And I think as long as that environmental impact is managed effectively, um, I, I I think that it's a controllable thing. You know, only so many people can go there, and so it's a, a positive for people to see that it's an incredible place. I, I wonder if you could give us, and I don't know how much information you're allowed to tell us about this, but a day in the life. Then, so you get there, you you you've you've settled in. What's a day in the life of, of being down there? Yeah, so when we get to the field, um, in this particular trip, it was myself and a field guide, uh, an amazing woman called Julie Balm, who has worked for the British Antarctic Survey. She's worked for them for a few years. And when we get to the field, the first thing you do is do a lot of digging. Oh my God, most of Antarctic field work mm-hmm. is just digging <laughs> snow. So you kind of, you dig your tent in, you put the tent up, which is an orange pyramid tent. Um, and is it freezing out there? It's Well, it really depends. So yeah. some days it was um, around zero degrees and it was 
warmer than it was in Manchester. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's no rain, there's no moisture, so it's incredibly dry. Oh, yeah. it, it can be minus 20 and it can still not feel that cold mm. because um, if the sun's out, there's a high albedo. Mm. It's not too bad. But it can be, you know, zero degrees and blowing wind and be absolutely freezing. Mm. So it's the moment the wind gets up, it's, it's a complete nightmare. Mm. Um, but you put your tent up and that protects you from uh, blowing snow mm. and the wind. And inside the tent, you have the sleeping bags and you have a cooking equipment, which also heats the tent. Mm. And we have a tilly lamp to keep us warm. So normally we woke up at around 7 a.m., which is frankly way too early for me. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> and then normally, uh, I say normally, normally it was Julie because she was always awake before I was, <laughs> um, would put the uh, heat the tent up, put the, put the getting things warmed up a little bit. And often we would um, have to, or she, she would go outside the tent and see what the weather was looking like because we'd have to tell Hallie if the weather was good, if it was bad, mm. if there were, what, what the wind was doing, so that if there was any issues with flying for aeroplanes, um, they knew what the conditions mm. were. Um, after taking some weather, we would have breakfast, um, porridge, muesli, um, that sort of stuff, lots of high-energy food, a cup mm. of coffee, tea. And then we would go out to work. We'd get dressed. Um, typically, I'd wear about five pairs of trousers through from <laughs> long johns up to like a down layer and then a, um, a, like a ski sour pet. And then on top, probably about five or six layers as well, down again from, you know, a thermal vest layer through mm. to several thicker layers, a jumper. Uh, a big windproof jacket and a down layer. So we put all of that garb on, big boots. You get out the tent wearing your sun cream because the sun's very strong, so you don't want to burn. Um, and then we'd uh, put on our climbing racks. So for those of you that go climbing, this is basically a harness with bits of metal equipment. Um, and that's a safety thing. So okay. if we ever fell into a crevasse, um, the equipment that we'd wear we would be used to be able to get ourselves out wow, again. So we yeah. could kind of prosic, um, which is um, kind of raise yourself up a rope mm. or you could set up a safety line to bring the other person up so, so with that in mind do you have to go through training before you go then yeah, yeah. so when we got down to rothera uh julie who's the field guide goes through a lot of this this training mm. and demonstrates how you can rescue somebody from a crevasse and rope skills and things like that uh, and you know knowing the emergency procedures we also have um first aid training before yeah. we go down to antarctica we have a two-day intensive field uh, first aid course um, where they teach you kind of the basic medicine stuff to, mm. you know, deal with an emergency. Um, thank goodness we didn't really have to use any of that knowledge, yeah. but um, it was it was useful and terrifying to know the types of things that could possibly mm. happen. So, you know, you always keep that in mind, safety consciousness. Um, so you put your, your safety equipment on, um, you go warm your skidoo up. So we, we drive snowmobiles. Um, we have one each, so you have to make sure the engine's uh, fine and running well and then you load your skidoo up with your emergency skidoo, skidoo. I, I know the do as they call it <laughs> oh, you load your the do up they call it the they do hey the guys do. we need to go get some penguin exactly. poo get, get your skidoo get <laughs> <laughs> and then we would go to you know we'd get all the equipment on and we um would travel out from where we had our camp into the field all this is quite a lot of faffy time so normally it's about an hour to kind of get ready to go hmm. and then when you're ready to go we drive out to the field site in what's called a linked travel. So um, Julie would go off first on her skidoo and then I would be, and then there's a sledge um, kind of dragging uh, field equipment and then there would be me behind and we'd all be in a long line connected with a rope so that um, again, if there was any kind of safety issues, we would be protected along a, a control system. 
we get to the field that we wanted to go to. Sometimes we drove for about 10 minutes. Sometimes we drove for 30 minutes. One, oh my goodness, one day was like an hour and a half. Um, and this is all over quite rough ground mm. with big uh, snow mounds that we called Sastrugi. I think that is an Inuit word for um, these kind of snow peaks. Mm. So it's sort of a little bit like riding. The, the skidoos are really comfy. They're kind of like big, beefy motorbikes. But um, some days it was a bit like being on a bucking bronco and you kind of, <laughs> you're driving along and you're bumping all over the place trying not to um, let go of the skidoo. And then when we get to the field, we disconnect from the safety system. And um, at that point, we're meteorite hunting. Yeah. And we kind of, we just go. So we sort of drive across um, the blue ice, which is incredibly bumpy. Mm. It has these scallops in the surface. And uh, so you're sort of rattling across. And then when you do that, you're looking side to side. And you're trying to sp- spot black rocks. Literally just looking out for them. Yeah, literally, yeah. On this particular trip, yeah. we were we were literally yeah. just looking for things that weren't ice. Yeah. So every time you see a rock, yeah. you'd get off your skidoo. Yeah. Um, sometimes it would turn out to be earth rock. Mm. And so you'd kind of recognize what the local rock was like that mm. had blown off the local mountains. But more often than not in the places we went, they were typically meteorites. Wow. Um, and then when you, when you spotted something, you'd call the other person over. And then we go about collecting that sample. As you said, this is the third time you've been out there. Do you feel jaded to it now? Or do you still get extremely excited every time you see one? They still get excited. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. The feeling when you spot a meteorite is awesome. Yeah. It's a little bit of an adrenaline kick. It mm. sounds strange. You know, you're there to do this as your job. But especially when you see a cool looking one, especially when you see one from like 30 meters away, because then you're yeah. like, yes, this is going to be big. <laughs> or you can, well, as soon as you get off the skidoo and you look at it and you think, that's quite different to things we've seen before and that's exciting as mm. well so i'd say yeah pretty much every meteorite we found was a was a you know a really awesome feeling you kind of get a bit addicted to it after a while so presumably on some days you find more and on some days you find less what's how do you kind of keep the morale up as you go to kind of continue looking yeah that's a really good question because you're in such a remote environment and it's quite a you know it's a very different experience from being at work normally mm-hmm. and um yeah you're absolutely right on a day you don't find any meteorites is incredibly frustrating you know you you're working really hard it's physically exhausting to stand up on this skidoo all day mm-hmm. it's physically exhausting to be out in the cold um sometimes you aren't eating as much as you should do because mm-hmm. you're you're sort of trying to um you know you just plow on basically mm-hmm. and if you get to the end of the day and there's no meteorites so yeah that that that's sort of one of those mental check things that that's difficult but then you you sort of have to think of well tomorrow will be a better day type of thing so some days you know i one of us didn't find any or 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 the other one wouldn't and you just kind of have to balance it out thinking well tomorrow it will be re- redressed by the other person finding mm-hmm. a few more it's yeah it's a strange sense of plowing on and especially when you're wearing your face mask which you wear all the time to protect you from the wind it's quite insular so you you're actually quite um in enclosed but even though you're in this huge empty yeah. environment you're in quite an enclosed space so sometimes you just have to stop and sort of shake your head and, and think um you know remain focused on what you're doing if you spend most of your day meteorite hunting and you had a, had an off day are there things that you can do around the camp to kind of help cheer you up again or do you just go straight to sleep when you're done yeah we normally have a lot of hot chocolate um (laughs) so yeah that's a good question so if you have a day or if for example on this trip when you have a bad weather day and you can't get out of the tent Mm -hmm. to go and work or you you go out and then you you don't achieve as much um so what we would do on those sorts of days or in the evenings is every night um when we got back to the camp we phoned 
back with Halley, the people in Halley, mm-hmm. the operations team there. Um, it was our scheduled phone call. And for them, it's a way to check that we are okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If we don't phone in, then they know there's, an, there's a problem and emergency procedures kick in. But that phone conversation for us was a really nice thing in the evenings because we got to speak to, I think there was about four of them on the base. Um, there was Rich, who was the base commander, Barney, who's the science uh, lead, Alan and Sarah, who are the comms leads. Mm -hmm. And that was so lovely because you got to hear somebody else's voice Mm -hmm. and you could build up a bit of a rapport through talking Mm -hmm. with them and listening to their stories. And they tell us jokes and generally... And had you met them before? Yeah, so we'd kind of met them going out. Yeah, right. So that was a really, that was a nice sort of thing, something you look forward to in the evenings, Mm -hmm. which was a procedural thing, Mm -hmm. but also it was a nice way to sort of feel that there were other people out there. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally um, they would come and resupply us or move our camp. And our uh, pilot, who flew the Twin Otter, who is an amazing woman called Vicky, um, would come in and we'd also get a co-pilot come in from Halley as well. So we did see quite a few people during the field right. season that we could kind of catch up with. Is it quite difficult to adjust to such a, a white landscape? Were you gagging to see some green after a while? Yeah, yeah, you miss certain colours, certainly. And you miss topography. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's, It's very difficult to judge distance and mm. to gain that idea about that space that you're actually in. You must be really so, reliant on GPS, I guess, to navigate. Completely. Yeah, you look at a hill and you think, oh, I could walk over to that. And then you suddenly realise it's about six kilometres away <laughs> and that's probably not quite a good idea. But yeah, adjusting adjusting to being in that environment takes a while. And then it's almost much more difficult to then adjust back because you've been living this quite a different lifestyle than you'd normally live and I think I think that's a really hard thing is when you come back out of Antarctica getting back to all the normal stuff and you know yeah. paying for things with money again my word and so you, you were know out there for I was out there for now. yeah in the field we were out there for about um four weeks and wow. then in total about a month and a half so four weeks of essentially doing the same thing every day yeah exactly but yeah. All, all sitting around in the tent not doing yeah. a lot <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess sitting around the tent days must be the hardest days so. yeah you're yeah. kind of wanting to work and you can't it's yeah. quite frustrating I mean that's the academics problem isn't it you, <laughs> yeah. you know, what is a weekend yeah <laughs> You know, I, I read a lot of books and I, I, we did have a laptop. So we do take it as a little generator mm. and you can power your laptop up. So we did watch some movies and things. Okay, so you're back now. You've you made the journey. You've been back a little while. Um, could you tell us a bit about what, you know, what we can expect? What did you find? So when we first went into the field, we didn't really know what we were going to find. And that was always the risk, which is why this is a reconnaissance mission to Antarctica to see whether these ice fields that have never been visited before actually were meteorite bearing. Mm-hmm. So the number one thing we found was meteorites, which is good news. Fantastic. <laughs> I know on the uh, we didn't find any on the first day, so it was a little bit down that day. But the second day we found three. And from there on in, we continued to find um, pretty much one every day we went out and worked. One day I think we found eight, which was amazing. Wow. But we got in total um, 36 meteorites, I think, through the whole field season. Um, I probably did collect a couple of non-meteorites as well, but I'm not counting those in the official number. Mm -hmm. Um, So we found a range of samples in size varying from a couple of millimetres up to the biggest one was about 20 centimetres. Can I just ask before you go into detail about the actual samples, what is the step-by-step for actually determining something as a meteorite other than just it's a black rock? Yeah, so in the field, um, we we recognise them because they have a certain colour to their exteriors. They have that a black fusion crust, Mm -hmm. as you say, or they just look very different to the local terrestrial rock. So you're right at the point of collection 
we can't 100% guarantee that it's a meteorite, but through you know being familiar with what meteorites look like, mm-hmm. I'm pretty confident that, yeah. that they are. Um, we so also- for those who don't know, a fusion crust is as a meteorite is falling through the atmosphere, it burns the outside of it. And that is what we call the fusion crust, that burnt uh, exterior. Completely, yeah. So yeah. we lose about a third of the meteorite during that entry phase. And that burning of the exterior, um, really, de- the color really depends on the type of meteorite. So some meteorites have a very black fusion crust. Some are kind of a chocolate brown. Some are even a weird green color. It's really mm-hmm. strange. So it depends on the type of meteorites, whether it's come from an asteroid, what type of asteroid, if it's come from the moon or Mars, as to what color they go mm-hmm. during that entry event. So when we find them in the field, we, we sort of can look at a meteorite and go, well, we think it's probably one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know you don't want to be a hundred percent certain. We can do another little test as well. We can use, in fact, Tom's very familiar with this. We can use a magic device provided by our colleague um, Jerome Gatacheka in France that measures the magnetic susceptibility and the conductivity. So basically, how much metal there is in that sample and how that that metal conducts electricity through mm-hmm. the sample, and that gives us an indication about um, the metal content of that, that that particular rock. And earth rocks typically can be magnetic, but they have low metal contents. Meteorites typically ha- can have both metal and they're both magnetic as well. So we can use this device, take a measurement, and that gives us another rough idea, um, or pretty good idea actually, about what type of meteorite it is. So I've analysed, um, Tom did some work before we went out there, um, analysing some of our lab samples. Yeah. And yeah. We, have a good, we have a good index of those. So the one thing Tom's not going to say because he's too polite is mm. you also have to base that measurement on the mass of the sample. And he knows how rubbish I am at estimating the heaviness of different rocks. <laughs> so you put me through a training procedure. Yeah, yeah, we were using the... Um, the clicker that we use for the numbering system. We uh, knew how heavy that was. Yeah, and the box. The box, the box the... for the device as well. We, we weighed them and we're trying to figure out yeah. how, how much... Well, so using your hand. It's you a difficult skill. I mean, there's a reason yeah. why people do that as competition for raffles and stuff. Yeah. It's not easy. <laughs> you should get it. Well, well it's, quite, it's quite important in actually determining the output. So, if sorry, the mass to, of the object. The mass of the object, yeah. yeah. Whilst, whilst you don't have to know it exactly, yeah. it, it is quite important in, mm. in ensuring that you're accurate. Well, I watched Hell's Kitchen once and Gordon Ramsay got the people to slice up a fillet in perfect 250 gram sizes. So you should bring a sous chef out with you next time you get and they can... Piece of steak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Well, I was still a little bit rubbish. So although I have those measurements, um, mm. we need to check everything. So yeah. so we'll, we'll do that when we get the samples back to the lab. But 36 of the samples mm. we collected, I am pretty convinced are not of this earth. And so we, we, we've put them in bags. They're in a special box mm. and we've kept them frozen. So currently they are still in Antarctica, even though I'm back, the samples aren't. And they're going to be put on a boat and shipped back to the UK as frozen packaging, mm-hmm. um, uh, along with some ice cores, um, samples that were collected by other science projects. And then in June, we get that box, we can unpack them one by one. And then we'll go through a procedure whereby we look at them in the laboratory in Manchester and using the same techniques that we use for our research projects, such as um, measuring the mineral chemistry using electron microscopes will we'll probably measure the gas content we'll send some to our cl- material to our collaborators mm. that work on different isotope systems like oxygen we'll be able to write up a definition of what each meteorite is mm. and put it within its class of meteorites so you know meteoriticists are kleptomaniacs and we have these amazing classification systems for 
all these different types of asteroids and how those asteroids have been changed by water interaction or by metamorphism on their parent body also by how much they've been shocked by impact processes mm-hmm. so between us as a team we'll classify them and then we'll release that list to the community and then people interested in doing scientific research on the meteorites from not just from within the uk but you know from anywhere in the world will be able to get in contact with us and we can share some pieces of our meteorites with them so that's the long-term goal for the project is to is to share the samples for planetary science research and the types of cosmic chemistry that mm. we do in the UK really well. Can I ask what's the importance of keeping them frozen? The reason we keep them frozen is because they've probably got water inside their pore spaces and from sitting in the ice flows in Antarctica. And we kind of want to control how that water behaves when it's liberated from the sample mm. so it doesn't alter or damage the sample. And so we'll freeze dry them, um, which is the sort of standard technique that's done to try and control that water loss. Um, you know, if we collect a meteorite from a hot desert, we don't really have to worry about that too much. But for Antarctica, it's a good idea that we keep them as pristine as possible. So essentially to stop the water from altering the minerals. Yeah, exactly. And there's other things that's like salts that are trapped within them. Mm. We don't really want the salts to suddenly start um, mixing with the samples particularly. So um, the other reason um, we're going to do it frozen is because we're going to go hopefully back to Antarctica. Well, we, we are going this this year again. And the longer term goal of the project is this year we collected meteorites on the surface um, of the ice um, the real long-term goal of the project and this kind of goes back to the statistics question and what my colleague Jeff is interested in is we're designing a technology for detecting subsurface meteorites so meteorites are trapped within the ice that are metal rich that we can find using metal detectors and so what we'd like to do next year is bring back some if if we can find one of these ice trapped meteorites is to bring the whole thing back encapsulated in ice so that we can actually then make measurements of the ice as well as the meteorites. So this is almost a practice run for what mm. we'll do next time around. So just going back to what you said at the beginning then, so your hypothesis at the moment is there's very few metal rich ones found in Antarctica because they melted into the ice then. Yeah, so it's a complicated mechanism. So yeah, as you say, we have these stony types which have lower amounts of metal and then we have the metal-rich ones, so the iron meteorites, and um, we have this amazing group called the palisites, which are a mixture of metal and um, silicate material. So they probably form deep within a planetary body, so towards the core, the core mantle boundary. And um, we think that these metal-rich meteorites probably not necessarily sink into the ice, but they they kind of, as they're, they're sort of drawn up towards the surface by this upward motion of ice, they heat up within the ice, and then they kind of relative to the upward flow of the ice. I'm wiggling my hands around, not this is useless for radio. There's an amazing animation of this on our website. <laughs> um, they kind of like sink down into the ice as the surrounding ice is moving up. Mm. So that's the hypothesis. Um, and there should be a certain relationship, a certain ratio of those that sink within. We think they probably get stuck at about 30 to 50 centimeters within the ice yeah. to those that then pop out on the surface. The, the other side of that fence is this year, I think we have probably found one meteorite sitting on the surface, which is made of iron, okay. which is exciting yeah. because it, it clearly demonstrates that we have some that have kind of counteracted this process. Mm. And, and there are other irons that are found in Antarctica. But again, we'll have to check that when we get the meteorites back. Couldn't it be lab. possible that they've landed after the ice has Yeah, been. that's the other thing. Exactly that. So we could have recent falls that have not gone through this mass transport mm. mechanism and therefore they've been delivered to those areas. Yeah, absolutely right. So if the metal detectors turn up some sub-ice meteorites, what's the... That 30 to 50 centimetres of ice is presumably pretty difficult to get to them. 
how do you, what's the plan yeah, yeah so you should talk to jeff about this you need to get him on um it's mm. quite a uh well we've gone through lots of iterations of of how best to extract meteorites from the ice and jeff actually when he went down to antarctica this year he visited a different part of antarctica to me that was one of his main tasks was to uh, work out how we could extract any buried meteorites safely um, and he thinks uh, we, he tried a chainsaw, um, which which was quite an exciting health and safety risk <laughs> assessment experience. Um, but it, it it worked fine um, mm-hmm. using a chainsaw to get some ice out. But we've actually we think we have a better way where we're kind of using an ice alga, so a little right. bit like an Archimedes screw type of affair to extract a large area of of ice from around the meteorites as well. So he's trialed both those methods Mm. and we'll take both those bits of equipment next time around. So how does the, out of the 36 that you collected, is that what you'd expect for searching for four weeks? How does it compare to other field areas? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So um, all these things are kind of dependent on the number of people um, the ground covered um, by these search operations and the particular area that you're looking in. So the ice catchment that's fed mm. that area with meteorites and these sort of all play off against each other. So we were two people. Um, we were, uh, you know, we had quite a lot of tent time because of the weather. So I think we probably searched for just under three weeks in total. Um, we need to kind of calculate the numbers of hours. So, um, yeah, we're probably a little bit lower than other field trips mm. to Antarctica, for example, uh, sometimes they recover hundreds of meteorites. Um, even I think one year Ansmet got about twelve hundred. Um, oh, wow. So we are we're we're lower on numbers than maybe I would have liked. However, considering we've been to these new areas and you know there was two yeah. of us, um, and this is the first time we've done it. I think actually you know we, we've achieved quite a lot for the yeah. for the amount of time we spent there. Um, and the thing I think I'm most proud of is the fact that we found a, what appears to me to be quite a good diversity of types. Mm-hmm. So we've got everything through from I think a couple of achondrites, so those that have come from really big asteroids um, or maybe the moon or mars through to the iron meteorite types and lots of chondrites in between and we've also seemed to find quite large meteorites compared to what i remember finding on my previous experience Mm. so we've got quite a few that are over about five centimeters so um, that's good because it means we probably missed a lot of the smaller ones Um, and so when we go back to these areas next year there's a good chance that we can recover a lot more that we may have missed on this first trip right so i think we should probably wrap up there i know we've only really scratched the surface on what you do katie because we're only talking about your antarctica trip Uh, you're also obviously a a lunar scientist as well so we'll have to get you back on to talk more about that and i think we should say thank you very much for having you on uh is there anyone you'd want to shout out anything you yeah no it'd be really great um take the opportunity to thank the other guys on the team that i'm involved with so you know jeff is the pi the project and say um we all the people in manchester andy who was uh did a lot of the work kind of looking into where we should go in Antarctica and the guys that built the metal detectors from the engineering school. Um, we should also thank the Leverhulme Trust who uh, funded Funny, our yeah. uh, amazing project. They took a, they like risky interdisciplinary stuff and I think we're a, a nice example of that. Mm. And, um, you know, most of all, just like to thank everybody at the British Antarctic Survey because they were, they were just awesome. You know, getting us there, um, sorting us out for all the, the health and safety keeping me going through four mm. weeks particularly julie for sharing a tent with me and uh, coping <laughs> with that experience she was an incredible woman and vicky our twin otter pilot who flew us all around antarctica um uh, she's phenomenal as well and jen our flight engineer it was really mm. cool to do this trip with three you know most of it was with three other women so yeah. that for me was a really good thing and mm. just generally all the support from bass you don't you don't realize 
you know, there's people that are doing all the planning for making sure the weather's okay, mm. the chefs for creating amazing food, and just all these people that work really hard and probably um, on most of the science projects, you never really get a chance to, to understand what their jobs are. Mm. So that was for me one of the best experiences working with all the people at Bass. Right. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So once again, just thank you for having you on. No problem. Thanks and your, a lot. your Twitter. Is... Oh yeah. So we do have a website, um, yeah. um, and you can I uh, think which I think you guys will link to. Yep, so go and explore that, and that. follow us on Twitter. And um, when we start classifying the meteorites, um, we'll we'll put all that information out online. And um, when Tom and I do start doing some fun science with it as well, we'll start sharing that with you. Yeah. Grand. Thank Fantastic. you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Woo-hoo.